This is a People First Radio podcast. Our next guest says that student mental health and how well students are doing in school go hand in hand. Gabrielle Wilcox is an associate professor of school and applied child psychology at the University of Calgary. She's also a former school psychologist. In a recent piece in The Conversation, she argues that people can sometimes create a false dichotomy. That either we can support academic success or mental health. Or that mental health is more important than academic achievement. Wilcox joined me to share why she feels that one of the best ways to support mental health is to support academic development. My name is Gabrielle Wilcox, and I'm currently an associate professor of School and Applied Child Psychology at the University of Calgary. And you've written that supporting academic achievement is key to supporting student mental health. Before we get into the why, what prompted you to to make this argument? Yeah, so before becoming an academic, I actually worked as a school psychologist in specialized programming with students who had severe emotional and behavioral disorders. So when I would go and look through their CUME file, I would see this pattern of, you know, first graders who were super eager and excited and liking school and beginning to have some academic difficulties. And then as those academic difficulties continued without good remediation, then you started to see these behavior and mental health issues. And so really, uh, I would say I had almost no students who didn't also have academic problems and that their academic difficulties preceded their behavior and emotional challenges. So it made me really start to think about how potentially supporting those early academic uh, skills could make kids feel more successful, more like they belong at school and support than their general well-being. And so you talked there about some of your personal career experiences. Is this something that you've also seen maybe in the broader research? Yeah. So then I was asked to actually write a chapter about this, which made me dig into it a little bit more about what is this relationship between academic success and mental health. And there are a couple of different theories, including academic success leads to mental health, mental health leads to academic success, they're bi-directionally related, or that some other third thing impacts both of them. And so it's complicated and there's some research supporting all of them, but the one that has the most research supporting it that I could find was that academic success in the early years especially really supports behavioral and mental health. Yeah. Can you maybe dive into what academic success looks like in the early grades, in the early years? I think, I don't know, when I hear the word academic success, I think of people throwing off graduation caps or trying to get 90s in high school and make the honor roll or whatever. But what does that look like at a real young age? Yeah. So academic success in those early years is being able to learn how to read to decode those words and then eventually read them fluently and understand what they're reading, being able to understand numbers in the way that numbers work and do some basic problem solving, being able to communicate with other people through writing. So all of those really foundational things where you're not going to be graduating from high school if you don't get those skills of basic reading, writing, math. So I imagine a lot of people would say, yes, that makes sense if students are able to read, if students are doing better in school, it 
checks out that they will probably also like be a little bit happier and yeah. their wellness yeah. would be a little bit better. So is this something, is this a particularly maybe, I don't know, controversial argument to make or are there approaches being taken in education systems that, that aren't taking this into account? Yeah. So recently there's been more of an understanding about the importance of mental health, which is really important. But in education, we we're fond of having pendulum swings where we're either or thinking. Um, and so there's been a lot of push and even some articles written saying that uh, we can either support mental health or we can support academics and that we have to make a choice and that mental health is the one that's important, where I think the research really supports that it's a both and. And I think also, um, I didn't talk about this, but there are other areas that are also important for health and well-being. So if you're going to be mentally well, you need to be physically well as well. So you need to have good sleep and have enough food in your stomach and not be sick. So those are also important. They're not what I covered uh, in mind, but that we can't just break out one little piece and support it and think that everything is going to be supported for well-being. Yeah. And when it comes to talking about maybe supporting the general student on a, a big systems level, obviously, every student is going to come from a different background. They're going to have a different situation at home. Maybe they have or don't have a learning disability. Their economic background is going to be different. So every student will bring their own unique circumstances to school. So how do we go about trying to like help support student mental health and student academic success more generally? Yeah, so broad things are, you know, having good relationships between teachers and students is is really key that supports all aspects, right? So if if you have a good relationship between a teacher and a student, your instruction is going to be better and those mental health supports are better and those students are more likely than to tell the teacher that things aren't okay. I didn't get breakfast, right? Or I have these things going on. So I think that relationship between students and teachers is foundational for all aspects of mental well-being. And then I think another one is in school psychology, we really focus on database decision making. So really looking at the data about how students are doing and checking in frequently so that we can make changes when it's not. So maybe, you know, 15 of your 20 students are doing fantastically, but you have five students who are falling behind. So then what can we change for those students so that we can support them so that they can uh, continue to be successful and like school and be engaged and, and well? So if we're approaching this from the standpoint of students who do better in school are going to have better wellness, uh, does there is there a line or does there come a point where a focus on academic achievement can maybe put pressure on students in a way that becomes harmful? Yeah, so I think this is one of the areas that's led to saying we should only focus on mental health. So probably more in secondary schools where there are environments that are highly competitive. So it's not about doing your best and doing good work, but it's about being better than everybody else. And that if you didn't, like, if you got a 96% instead of a 99%, your world has fallen apart. Those kinds of pressures and false kind of competition between students can be unhealthy. And I think that's partly what's led to more of a focus on mental health over academics, instead of having maybe a more healthy approach to strong academics instead of 
it being the zero sum game where like if you get a good mark, then I can't get a good mark. Do you find that there is a bleed between something like what you just described at the secondary level and thinking about students in maybe grades one to three and and their success? I would say in some settings, maybe, but broadly, no. So I would say in maybe highly in specific areas that are highly competitive and families want highly competitive or like private schools perhaps where that is the goal that my kid's going to be better than every other kid in the world. Um, but I would say broadly in public schools, I haven't seen that as much, not to say that there, there can't be public schools that are like that. Um, but I would say it's less, less common in those elementary school grades to have that kind of competitiveness. You're listening to People First Radio. My guest is Gabrielle Wilcox. She's an associate professor of school and applied child psychology at the University of Calgary. We're talking about the links between academic success and mental well-being, focusing particularly on younger grades. And earlier on, you kind of acknowledged that uh, you did acknowledge that there's a, a lot of, you know, we don't really know. We can't really measure what causes what when it comes to student success, student mental health. But is there anything that we can say like with a bit more confidence when it comes to doing well in school and feeling better? Yeah, so uh, there have been a couple of longitudinal studies in elementary school populations where they look at entering kids. So kids in kindergarten, they look at their early academic skills and they look at their mental health and then they see which ones predict their later academics and mental health. And so they have found that how well you're doing in like kindergarten and academics predicts how well you're feeling and your behavior in grades three and five, but the opposite isn't true. So there's a little bit of support for some causality, but as you suggested, we can't put kids in groups, right? We're going to give this group of kids good academics and this group of kids purposefully bad academics to see what happens with their mental health, or we're going to do something to their mental health right? And go, we're going to make these kids mentally not well and see how it impacts their academics. We can't do that kind of experiment. So those longitudinal studies are as close as we can get um, when we work with with people. So was the takeaway from that longitudinal study, just to make sure I understood in real time, that if you did really well in kindergarten academically, that probably you were going to be still doing well in grade three and grade five. And then if you didn't do so well in kindergarten, well, it didn't really tell you much, like maybe later on you did really well or maybe you didn't. It was kind of not as related. Yeah, they were more looking at the relationship between the opposite skills. So like I'll just take reading your reading skills in kindergarten and then your mental health and behavior in grade three. So if you came in and you were starting reading and you, you were catching on and you were getting it well, then by grade three, you probably were a well-behaved kid who was feeling pretty good about himself. But if you came into kindergarten and you were struggling with reading and it was hard for you and you weren't getting it, you were more likely to have behavior problems and not feel very good about yourself in grade three. And what do you think that I'm curious maybe about the role of of reading uh, in all of this specifically? It seems like it's maybe one of the the most important, the core things that you're going to be doing as a, a student in the first few grades. I don't know. Is there anything that, that you would say about specifically reading for young children and mental health? 
Yeah. So as you suggested there, reading is foundational for all other learning. If When you're learning math, when you're learning writing, science, social studies, reading is how we get there, especially um, late elementary school on. A lot of our learning components is with reading. So students who don't have adequate access to be able to read really lose out on a lot of instructional opportunities and independent instructional opportunities. So as adults, much of the way we learn things is by reading books and reading newspapers and reading magazines. And so if you don't have access to that, it really limits your ability to access the world. And when you say if you don't have access to that, would be would that be not having access to that in a, a school environment or you you are coming into school, like not having learned it already? What what does that mean? Yeah, so uh, there are kids enter school with different levels of readiness for reading. But there are lots of kids who aren't reading when they get to school, who when they get instruction in um, connecting sounds with letters are able to access it really well. And then there are other kids who struggle with making those connections. So um, yeah, definitely coming in with some at least foundational skills with experience in reading can support kids. But there are lots of kids who come in without those who with good instruction are able to catch up. And so what is the what is the good instruction piece look like there? Yeah. So the research on reading shows that good instruction for reading is direct and explicit. Um, and in those early years, really has a lot of focus on phonics, phonemic awareness and phonics. So phonemic awareness is that connecting sounds, like hearing that sounds are made up of words. So if kids can't hear that, like, for example, cat is made up of three sounds, k, at, then that makes it harder for them to connect those sounds to letters. So that phonemic awareness piece is first and then connecting those sounds to letters and then eventually being able to read fluently and um, and accessing comprehension skills. Those are some of the key components of good early literacy instruction. And then the discussion today is suggesting that doing that will will better equip you to have better mental health, to to feel better, to, to just be generally more well a few years down the road. Yeah, I, I like one of the examples I like to give is if as an adult, we were asked to do a job that we weren't good at. So uh, a common example I give is like as a phlebotomist, because many people are, you know, don't like needles and would be really scared. But we go, just do it. And you have to go in and do it every day. You, you get really horrible feedback, right? Everybody that you try to take blood from hates you because you've done it poorly and you've hurt them and their vein collapsed and you have to go in every single day. Eventually, you would start to maybe have a lot of sick days, right? It wouldn't feel very good. You wouldn't want to keep going back and doing that. And similar with school, if every day you come in and you're asked to do something that you can't do and you get feedback to let you know, yep, you didn't meet the mark again today. You didn't meet expectations today. You're not quite getting what you need to do. Eventually, that really has an impact on how kids feel about themselves and their ability to learn. And then uh, I think there's a pretty obvious connection then to mental well-being, right? Uh, and then you don't feel very good about yourself. And then also behavior. There's a subset of kids who it's way easier to be bad than to feel stupid. So if I can pull attention away from this fact that I'm struggling academically and I'm either the class clown or the bad kid, then maybe you won't notice or pay attention to the fact that I'm really struggling so much. So the way out of that is to just 
give the students the instruction they need or are instruction better tailored to their needs such that they do make the grade? Yeah. Yeah. So again, having that good foundational instruction and then monitoring performance so that when kids are not doing well, we catch them really early and we give them good instruction and remediation so that they get back on track and so that they can feel like they can access their education. Yeah. And this is not to say that this will completely eliminate mental health problems. So acknowledging that mental health problems are more complex and there will be a subset, but I think that it will help reduce the number of students with serious mental health problems and make students feel like school is a safer, um, happier place for them broadly. Again, acknowledging that some kids will still struggle with mental health. This is People First Radio. I'm speaking with Gabrielle Wilcox. She's an associate professor of school and applied child psychology at the University of Calgary. She's also a former school psychologist. We've been talking about things on a real population level mostly so far today. But if I'm a a parent with kids, I guess, as all parents have, um, what do I need to know or what should I keep in mind about what we've been talking about today? Yeah, so I would really want to pay attention to whether or not my kid is meeting their academic goals. Like, how are they doing? Are they coming home saying that they are understanding what they're doing? Are they feeling pretty good? And if they're not, meet with the teacher, right? So really talk about what's going on in the classroom. And then what kinds of things can I do as a parent at home to support my kid? So can I get more books? Can I do more intervention reading things or math or whatever area to make my kid feel successful? And in a way um, that again, isn't punitive. So sometimes, sometimes parents, it's easy for us to approach it in a way that makes kids feel like it's just punishment. So we don't want those academic tasks to feel like punishment, but to feel like good supportive things to um, make school feel like a good place. So there's a balance there between the idea of, you know, I want my my child to to make the grade, but I don't want to feel like I am stressing them out by like putting some kind of undue pressure on them. Right. Yeah. So definitely very supportive stance rather than uh, you have to achieve at this level for me to be satisfied with you as a parent. Right. So it's good to make sure that your kids know that that you love them no matter what. And your job there is to support them, to help them with this difficult task rather than to let them know again that they're not meeting the grade because that hurts parent child relationships. And what about if I'm someone who's working in the education system, maybe a teacher or an EA or, or anything like that? Yeah. So one, as a school psychologist, I would say seek out your school psychologist. And if your school doesn't have one, let them know that, you know, this would be a valuable thing because school psychologists can support teachers significantly with understanding the data that they have on their students so that they can identify which students need more support. School psychologists can also help with identifying what can I do differently in my instruction especially with those kids who are struggling. School psychologists know a lot about those things. And school psychologists also can help with mental health. So some broad uh, group classroom-based things to support teachers, to support their kids, um, to make it a, a safe and welcoming environment. Are we at a place now where, say, in Canada, maybe a majority of public schools have a, a psychologist on staff? 
So in Canada, education is provincially mandated. So it varies quite significantly. And so I think it really varies a lot by district and whether or not districts think school psychologists are important to invest in and or sometimes schools, sometimes it's a school budget. And one school in a district will say, we value this and think that it provides a lot and other schools in the same district won't. So I think it's very uneven. Is there anything else you think it's important to bring to the conversation today on this? Yeah, I would say, again, just for if you're a teacher, really pay attention to how well your kids are doing and provide the supports that you can to get them up to speed. And again, this isn't saying that every kid has to get a 99% on everything. But if they're getting 40%, right, that's also going to be really detrimental to their uh, mental well-being. So we want kids to get the skills that they need in order to be successful at school. Gabrielle Wilcox is an associate professor of school and applied child psychology at the University of Calgary. People First Radio, People First Media, and People First Stories are community media projects of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society and are produced in Nanaimo, British Columbia. The opinions expressed do not necessarily represent the views of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society or its broadcast, podcast, and social media partners. Thank you.